Thank you to Ken and the musicians for leading us in those songs. It was wonderful. And thank you, Seth, for that prayer that you've led us in. That's a very, very fitting prayer to lead us into our passage this morning. Now, we come this morning to the third chapter of Galatians. So if you haven't already, please be opening with me to Galatians chapter 3. We'll look at the first five verses together this morning. Very quickly, as we come into chapter 3, we're going to notice that there's something of a change that is happening as we've reached this chapter. If you've been with us, you know that chapter 2 was generally about uh, walking through Paul's early years as a Christian, as a Christian minister of the gospel, and emphasizing his independence from the uh, other apostles. There was independence in his apostleship. From them, So his authority and his gospel message were not derived from them and from theirs. And in the course of making that very clear in chapter 2, he raised as an example the events that took place in Antioch when Peter came up to visit him and his church there. You recall that what he told us is that there came a moment when he had to rebuke Peter. And doing that proved yet again that he was not trying to please man, uh, nor was he riding the coattails of those other apostles. But last week, he started to bring our attention back again to the matter, generally speaking, that is affecting the Galatians. Bringing us back, zooming out a little bit, back to the reason that he is writing to them in the first place. Uh, Do you remember what we saw uh, all the way back in January in Galatians 1.6? They are in danger of deserting Christ by following after a different gospel. That's why he's writing to them. And this morning, Paul has finished making reference to past events and to his own life. He's done defending himself, defending his apostleship. He now turns his gaze back directly onto the Galatians themselves. Uh, But because of what he said here in the last couple of weeks at the end of chapter 2, he is able to return his gaze to them and his concerns for them while incorporating what he just has been speaking about, the truth of justification through faith in Christ as opposed to justification through works of the law. What we're going to learn this morning is we're going to get a better sense of exactly what has happened to these Galatians. And as we see this, I think you may find yourself feeling a mixture of some things. You may feel a sense of conviction as you see what exactly has happened to them. I could put it to you in the form of a question. Are you someone who knows what it feels like to to be amazed at what you are able to forget? If you had one of those moments recently where you've just sat back dumbfounded at your own capacity of forgetfulness. And I don't just mean forgetting people's names and things like that. I'm talking about your capacity to forget what God has done for you, what he has done in you and through you. Doubtless some here this morning have known what that feels like more than others. I mean, we have quite a spectrum of, uh, of in terms of the Uh, one's walk with Christ represented in this room right now. We have young children who have recently professed faith in Christ. 
We have adults who have been brought, have been led to the Lord uh, late in their life among us. We have adults here who have been walking with the Lord for half a century and more. There's quite a, quite a spectrum represented here uh, when it comes to our experience of walking with the Lord. And one thing that he is sure to reveal to us over time is the extent to which we're prone to forget what he has done for us in the past. And if you know that experience, then this morning's passage is going to resonate with you. Even as it warns you of exactly what can happen as we fail to hold on to what God has done in us and through us. Let's begin by reading the passage. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? We'll read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul continues what he's been writing to them in this way. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll do what we've done at some points uh, in this study, uh, but it is different than the norm. We will not approach this text by walking one verse at a time through. Rather, what we're going to do is see two different themes uh, that he sort of goes back and forth in in his words here. And I think it can be well wrapped up really in a single sentence. This is sort of how we'll structure our time. I think what we find here in Paul's words is this that God's work in us is not hard to see, but somehow it can be easy for us to forget. So those are the two pieces of what we'll look at. God's work in us is not hard to see, but somehow for us it can be easy to forget. His work in us is not hard to see. There is a primary assumption behind everything that he's saying here this morning, maybe you've noticed it, you can hear in his words the assumption on Paul's part, these Galatians have received the Holy Spirit. He is writing to believers as he's writing this letter. They have become members of God's people in Christ. And he makes that clear in a couple of overarching ways. First, he will say, their path to faith began with crystal clear instruction concerning the significance of Jesus Christ and him crucified. They heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and they had believed that simple, pure message. We see in verse 1, he says to them, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He should know. He's the one who brought it to them. And this is, this is a reference in particular to that preaching, to the preaching of Christ crucified. The word that we have here that we translate publicly portrayed 
Uh, it isn't meant to give us a sense that they actually witnessed the crucifixion or something like that. It's not that at all. This is a word that means uh, set forth for public notice or, get this, to proclaim or placard in public. It's an interesting word for them to use in that definition. He says to the Galatians here, you had the truth of Christ crucified for sinners paraded before your eyes as if on a placard. Makes me think of the sandwich men with the message on both sides. One thing's for sure, it's abundantly clear, the message that's being brought forth. He says, this is what it was for you. The pure gospel was placarded in your midst as you had God's truth about his son preached to you. And for most, if not all, of these churches, it was Paul himself who had preached this to them. And it was certainly his message then that had transferred and had grown in the area. He had committed, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he had committed among them to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He knew firsthand how unadulterated the message was that they had received. It was a pure message of vicarious atonement. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And these believers had received the message. And in receiving it, they had been saved. This is the assumption behind what we read in verse 2. Look with me there. We see the assumption at play again here. Let me ask you only this, he says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, again, you can hear the assumption there. You did receive the Spirit. You know it. I know it. All I need to ask you is, how did you receive it? Think back to your own conversion, Galatians. How did you receive the Spirit? It's a rhetorical question because all the parties involved know what the answer is to this. It's not up for uh, wrestling or debate. The answer is, they received the Spirit, by hearing with faith. That is to say, I mean, it's very simple. They heard and they trusted the message that they heard. One man puts it this way. If they conceded Paul's point, and in the light of their experience they could do no other, then they had conceded Paul's case. The ground was taken away from the Judaizing argument. Now, this leads to the second thing that Paul makes very clear about their reception of the true gospel. He says to them, that simple faith in the preached message, that simple trust in the finished work of Christ, that brought to you the very power of God. He will write to the Romans in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But just notice as we just browse through these five verses what is true of them in their own experience. Verse 2, they had received the Spirit. Verse 3, they had begun by the Spirit. Verse 4, they had been willing to joyfully submit to persecution. How does one become willing to endure? like that. This was already true of them. They had suffered. Verse 5, they had been witness to miraculous works upon hearing with faith. He says to them there, did he who supplies the Spirit to you 
and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. He's just pounding this over and over through these verses on the basis of their, ex their own experience that they cannot deny. So in a very fundamental way, our, our verses this morning are Paul appealing to their experience to prove what he has been saying uh, up to this point. Next week, we'll see him do the same thing, except by pointing to the scriptures. Uh, it, it's sort of a one-two punch that he's bringing them here to start off chapter 3. But here in particular, he appeals to their experience of salvation. And he says that for them, this even included the display and the witness of miraculous works. And remember the setting that we're dealing with here. This is the first generation church. We know that as the apostles traveled throughout the known world bringing the gospel, that their message was accompanied by the miraculous. It's even called true signs of an apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. I see a statement like that by Paul, and I, I say the, he's describing something of the experience that is unique to the apostolic ministry. But we're, he's writing to people who are converted and living in the time of the apostles. This had been experienced by the Galatians as well. And notice his point. It's an experience that they had before anyone showed up to make present requirements out of works of the law. That Judaizing argument is something that came second. And by the time that comes to their doors and they begin to be uh, tempted and uh, pulled by this message, they have already trusted the preached word of Christ and experienced the gifts of the Spirit. In other words, here's a way to sum it up. Uh, before the Judaizers showed up, he says, and he'll say this exactly in Galatians 5, 7, you had been running well. You were running well before this argument of these additional requirements came to your doorstep. I mean, there was a point there in their Christian walk where they were seeing so clearly and they were so grateful to Paul for how God had used him. In, in chapter 4, verse 15, he's going to say of them, there was a point in time you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if I had had need of them. Such was your understanding of the grace that was yours through this priest message. Such was your thankfulness for what God had done through the message that I brought to you as a messenger. I mean, that's where they had come from. Can you see why Paul would need to rub his temples here as he writes, Oh, foolish Galatians. When Christ crucified is proclaimed, God is at work in the proclamation and the reception of that message. When trust in Christ crucified is present, God's work is going on display for all to see. It doesn't look, we know this too, don't we? It doesn't look like perfect holiness in this life. It does look like growth in gratitude to God and humility and love, genuine love. And places like Galatians 4.15 present a clear picture of those things in their life. 
His work had been on display in them, easy to see, if you know what to look for. You see, this leads us to the second part of that sentence that we began with this morning. God's work is not hard to see, but somehow it can be easy for us to forget. I mean, everything that we have said so far is behind the emotion that we hear in Paul in these verses. You could even say the frustration that we can hear dripping from his words. Even as early as verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And behind the charge of folly here, of foolishness, you can tell is this notion of being quick to forget something that ought to be unforgettable. I mean, this is, this is what he's pointing to as he uses this descriptive word, foolish. I, I, read, I read about this uh, in this respect, uh, a word that I don't think I've ever heard before. I don't, I'm pretty sure I've never used the word before. The word illogicality. You ever heard the word illogical put like that? The, the, the extent of an illogical, uh, I don't know how you define that, illogicality. That was new for me. It came in this sentence. Paul uses the adjective foolish here to emphasize the illogicality of the Galatians' retrogression. It just doesn't make any sense in light of what they know and in light of what they have experienced. And that's what he's trying to emphasize in saying foolish Galatians. It's not an insult in the sense of something inappropriate. He's pointing out that this is completely illogical. You know better than this. But notice, though, that from the beginning here, he is not just, he's not just blaming them. He is linking their forgetfulness to active work from outside of them. Somebody has bewitched them. Who has bewitched you? Other words that are used to render this idea that Paul brings here are words like hypnotized or fascinated. I don't know why, but I sort of like that one. Who has fascinated you? I mean, to me, that, that takes away some, some sort of a notion of helplessness on their part. They're not this poor, um, they were right there, and then someone actually cast a magical spell they couldn't help, and now they're walking away. They have let themselves become fascinated by something that is leading them. And this new behavior is so strange and so completely at odds with the liberating message that they had previously accepted, that it, it looked as if someone had put a spell on them. There's something really important for us to notice in this because it applies to us as well. Here's, I think, one thing we can take from this. Even the growth that they had experienced, and I hope you agree based on what we've seen even in looking elsewhere in Galatians, they had experienced real growth. Even the growth they had experienced and the truth that they had held didn't render them immune from being captivated by philosophies of men. It was still a danger that they still needed to be concerned about and to be on guard against. And what is it here? This is very much what they have been captivated by, a philosophy of man. And the th Now again, you can hear the assumption there. You did receive the Spirit. You know it. 
I know it. All I need to ask you is, how did you receive it? Think back to your own conversion, Galatians. How did you receive the Spirit? It's a rhetorical question because all the parties involved know what the answer is to this. It's not up for uh, wrestling or debate. The answer is they received the Spirit by hearing with faith. That is to say, I mean, it's very simple. They heard and they trusted the message that they heard. One man puts it this way. If they conceded Paul's point, and in the light of their experience that they could do no other, then they had conceded Paul's case. The ground was taken away from the Judaizing argument. Now this leads to the second thing that Paul makes very clear about their reception of the true gospel. He says to them, that simple faith in the preached message, that simple trust in the finished work of Christ, that brought to you the very power of God. He will write to the Romans in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But just notice as we just browse through these five verses what is true of them in their own experience. Verse 2, they had received the Spirit. Verse 3, they had begun by the Spirit. Verse 4, they had been willing to joyfully submit to persecution. How does one become willing to endure like that? This was already true of them. They had suffered. Verse 5, they had been witness to miraculous works upon hearing with faith. He says to them there, did he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's just pounding this over and over through these verses on the basis of their, ex their own experience that they cannot deny. So in a very fundamental way, our, our verses this morning are Paul appealing to their experience to prove what he has been saying uh, up to this point. Next week, we'll see him do the same thing, except by pointing to the scriptures. Uh, it, it's sort of a one-two punch that he's bringing them here to start off chapter 3. But here in particular, he appeals to their experience of salvation. And he says that for them, this even included the display and the witness of miraculous works. And remember the setting that we're dealing with here. This is the first generation church. We know that as the apostles traveled throughout the known world bringing the gospel, that their message was accompanied by the miraculous. It's even called true signs of an apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. I see a statement like that by Paul, and I, I say the, he's describing something of the experience that is unique to the apostolic ministry. But we're, he's writing to people who are converted and living in the time of the apostles. This had been experienced by the Galatians as well. And notice his point. It's an experience that they had before anyone showed up to make present requirements out of works of the law. That Judaizing argument is something that came second. And by the time that comes to their doors and they begin to be uh, tempted and uh, pulled by this message, 
They have already trusted the preached word of Christ and experienced the gifts of the Spirit. In other words, here's a way to sum it up. Uh, before the Judaizers showed up, he says, and he'll say this exactly in Galatians 5, 7, you had been running well. You were running well before this argument of these additional requirements came to your doorstep. I mean, there was a point there in their Christian walk where they were seeing so clearly. And they were so grateful to Paul for how God had used him. In, in chapter 4, verse 15, he's going to say of them, there was a point in time you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if I had had need of them. Such was your understanding of the grace that was yours through this priest message. Such was your thankfulness for what God had done through the message that I brought to you as a messenger. I mean, that's where they had come from. Can you see why Paul would need to rub his temples here as he writes, Oh, foolish Galatians. When Christ crucified is proclaimed, God is at work in the proclamation and the reception of that message. When trust in Christ crucified is present, God's work is going on display for all to see. It doesn't look, we know this too, don't we? It doesn't look like perfect holiness in this life. It does look like growth in gratitude to God and humility and love, genuine love. And places like Galatians 4.15 present a clear picture of those things in their life. His work had been on display in them. Easy to see if you know what to look for. See, this leads us to the second part of that sentence that we began with this morning. God's work is not hard to see, but somehow it can be easy for us to forget. I mean, everything that we have said so far is behind the emotion that we hear in Paul in these verses. You could even say the frustration that we can hear dripping from his words. Even as early as verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? And behind the charge of folly here, of foolishness, you can tell is this notion of being quick to forget something that ought to be unforgettable. I mean, this is, this is what he's pointing to as he uses this descriptive word, foolish. I, I, read, I read about this uh, in this respect. Uh, a word that I don't think I've ever heard before. I don't, I'm pretty sure I've never used the word before. The word illogicality. You ever heard the word illogical put like that? The, the, the extent of an illogical, uh, I don't know how you define that. Illogicality. That was new for me. It came in this sentence. Paul uses the adjective foolish here to emphasize the illogicality of the Galatians' retrogression. It just doesn't make any sense in light of what they know and in light of what they have experienced. And that's what he's trying to emphasize in saying foolish Galatians. It's not an insult in the sense of something inappropriate. He's pointing out that this is completely illogical. 
You know better than this. But notice, though, that from the beginning here, he is not just, he's not just blaming them. He is linking their forgetfulness to active work from outside of them. Somebody has bewitched them. Who has bewitched you? Other words that are used to render this idea that Paul brings here are words like hypnotized or fascinated. I don't know why, but I sort of like that one. Who has fascinated you? I mean, to me, that, that takes away some, some sort of a notion of helplessness on their part. They're not this poor. Um, they were right there, and then someone actually cast a magical spell they couldn't help, and now they're walking away. They have let themselves become fascinated by something that is leading them. And this new behavior is so strange and so completely at odds with the liberating message that they had previously accepted that it, it looked as if someone had put a spell on them. There's something really important for us to notice in this because it applies to us as well. Here's, I think, one thing we can take from this. Even the growth that they had experienced, and I hope you agree based on what we've seen even in looking elsewhere in Galatians, they had experienced real growth. Even the growth they had experienced and the truth that they had held didn't render them immune from being captivated by philosophies of men. It was still a danger that they still needed to be concerned about and to be on guard against. And what is it here? This is very much what they have been captivated by, a philosophy of man. And the center of a topic, it could be a whole uh, weekend series on its own, couldn't it? But let's notice a couple of high points here. Paul is making something very clear. If you are, just imagine an individual, trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, begins to walk with him. Paul is clear here. My friend, if you are on the path that the Spirit sets his people on, and you proceed to walk finally away from reliance upon Christ, your walking will have been in vain. He uses the word. He brings up the, the concept of someone walking after the Lord and it proving to have been in vain. Dennis mentioned in Sunday school this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, he says the same thing there. He speaks about the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. What's the vanity there? The, belief, the believing in vain would be a belief that does not finally hold fast to the preached word. Paul's willing to bring up such a consideration, and he's saying it in a way that in no way compromises our understanding of God's preservation of his people or of the irrevocable nature of the gift of the Spirit. The scriptures are abundantly clear about that, aren't they? God gives the Spirit to his child. That is a gift that is irrevocable. None can pluck us from his hands. He's not contradicting that at all. And in fact, in the way he words it here in verse 4, you can tell he expects their walking, who he has already said they have the Spirit, he expects that walking not to be in vain. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? There's a clear anticipation there in him that it will not be in vain. But by giving this warning, 
And in the other places that we find these warnings, we find something very fundamental happening. And that is that we find that God works through divinely ordained means as he works. In his preservation of his people, he works through divinely ordained means. Some of those means are the very warnings he provides to his sheep in the text of Scripture. His warnings are heard by his people. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. It's what's different with them compared with the rest. So the Galatians received this letter. It's read. This warning about having walked in vain is read. What happens to the believers in their midst? What happens to Christians? They hear this warning of verse 4. They tremble. They are emboldened by it to continue walking in step with the Spirit of God and to continue relying solely on Christ and his righteousness. And they are preserved. They persevere by the very protecting power of God. And what's part of the way that God ensured their preservation? Well, the very warning that he gave to them here in Scripture. It's a crucial understanding for us to have if we're going to understand and correctly apply the warning passages of the New Testament, of which this is only one. Now then, we, we have sort of zoomed out at this point. Uh, let me make a suggestion to you. We'll narrow back in for just a moment on verse 3. Can I suggest to you that verse 3 is one of the most important verses for us to have relating to the Christian life? Let me read it again. Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? I tried to read it differently. The folly is connected to this question. It's one sentence in what he says. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer is no. This is an obvious no answer in the way that he words this. We need to notice that no answer. If our new life that we have in Christ, the sort of life that we've been seeing for the past several weeks now, if that new life is begun by receiving the Spirit, then the possession of the Holy Spirit is, in a sense, both the beginning and the end of the matter for us in terms of what God is going to do in his people. There is no second blessing that we are in need of if this is true. If God's Spirit has been poured out on me, His plan of redemption of His people and everything that that entails is a certainty. The Spirit will work through many means as He works in you and in me, including some means that we participate in personally, such as uh, growing in our understanding of His Word, uh, various circumstances and trials that the Lord brings us, that He grows us through, the cleansing of our consciences as we walk with him. But as those things happen, that growth, or that perfecting, as he puts it here, that growth is being done by the Spirit. What comes to mind then is Romans 3.27. He says there, well, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No but by the law of faith. This is the conclusion that we come to. This is the source of the Christian uh, 
the Christian persona of humility and thankfulness and peace and joy that cannot be touched. Because these things that he has begun, that he is doing, no one can take from us. And none of it is finally attributed to us. Just about finished here this morning. Let's end with a reminder of something, of the uh, root cause of the Galatians' troubles that we've been seeing this morning. Uh, You can tell in these verses, they have allowed themselves to forget what God has done. Think of what you have heard. Think of what we've seen from Paul here as he spoke about the pure, crystal clear, unadulterated message they heard, rejoiced in, received, trusted with their lives. Think of the uh, manifestations of the Spirit among them in terms of their sanctification, in terms of their ability to love the Lord more than this world, to suffer for His sake, even to see miracles in their midst, in their time. They had allowed themselves to forget what God had done. How can I protect against that? I need to. It's a risk that I am in every day of my life that I might come to forget what God has done. How can I protect against that? And as we ask the scriptures of that, we hear so many different answers and so much uh, uh, helpful guidance. We find things like, um, well, a thoughtful prayer life will tend to protect against that. Intentional meditation, the kind of intentional meditation that reflects on God's past graces to me. Things like having enough time left in the day to stop and breathe for a moment and think about what I was afraid of last year, what I was suffering in five years ago, and what the Lord has done through me in those things. Intentional meditation like that, that will protect me. Thoughtfully, Journaling those struggles and needs and the record of God's faithfulness and his lessons. That will protect. Thoughtful confession of sin. The kind of confession that actually seeks to repent of particular sins particularly. As the Westminster Confession puts it very well. Thoughtful confession. That seeks out the continued need that I have for the work of the Spirit. Those are just some examples aren't they? That's very representative of a much larger group. But do you notice what tied all of those examples together? It was something very simple. It was simply a thoughtful life. Thoughtful life. To put that in our context, maybe we could put it this way. It was a life not utterly dominated and controlled by entertainment and distraction. I read this last week, a, a, a pretty expansive study that they did in this last 2020 COVID season asking questions about how did that experience change our perceptions and our uh, behaviors. And one particular realm had to do with family life. And, and what it, one thing it said there was that 70% of children during the pandemic have spent at least four hours a day in front of a screen. At least four hours every day, 70% of our children. Talk about training, training a thoughtless life. 
And what we found this morning in the Galatians is that that sort of a thoughtless life isn't just a poor stewardship of what we've been given. It is that, and that would be bad enough because we are accountable for what God has entrusted to us. But what we found this morning is that it's worse than that. It's not just poor stewardship. It is the path of a life that will inevitably forget God's goodness and work in us. It's about that forgetfulness that Paul will go on to write in chapter 4, verse 11. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. May we never forget. And in that light, I would have us end our time in God's word before moving to the communion table by hearing and joining together in the praises of Psalm 136. And we're actually going to do this responsibly. I believe we'll have it up on the screen. Excellent. Thank you, Trevor. Can we end our time in God's word by standing together and reading responsibly from that psalm?